You can listen to all episodes of Leonard ad-free on Wondry Plus. Join Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or on Apple Podcasts. Oh, man. Well, geez. That was it. They just cut it off. 421 Cinco de Mayo. 422 now. Um, Gosh, my heart was just racing. Uh, It said scam likely when the call came, so... Uh, I'm trying to get ready to go to my father-in-law's 70th birthday here, and uh, the phone started ringing, and I'm like, oh my god, I know it's going to be Leonard, scam likely, definitely Leonard, and it was Leonard, and we're going to start emailing. God, I wanted to ask him so many questions. You're listening to Leonard, a new podcast series about Leonard Peltier, the longest-serving political prisoner in American history. I'm Andrew Fuller. And I'm Rory Owen Delaney. We've spent the last year working to share Leonard's story with a new generation of people. Who he is, how he ended up behind bars, and why we believe he deserves to go free. The audio you just heard was recorded in the moments after I first talked to Leonard on the phone. As you can probably hear, I was almost shaking from nerves and excitement. At the end of this episode we'll finally be sharing that conversation. In the first five episodes of this season, we've heard from a lot of people who were there on the ground on June 26, 1975, when a firefight broke out between two FBI agents and members of the American Indian Movement camping out on the Jumping Bull Ranch in Oglala, South Dakota. And we dug into some of the events that led up to the shootout. Alcatraz, Mount Rushmore, the Trail of Broken Treaties, the Custer Courthouse Riot, Wounded Knee, and Dick Wilson's Reign of Terror. To help explain why tensions were so high on Pine Ridge in the mid-70s. Why everyone was armed and ready to shoot at the slightest provocation. Season two of this podcast is all about the aftermath of the shootout. The trials of Dino Butler and Bob Rabadou that ended in acquittal. Leonard's trial, which ended in conviction. The four-decade fight to free him. All culminating with Leonard's release from prison. Ideally. Fingers crossed. But in this episode, which is the last installment of season one, we're going to give a little preview of the miscarriage of justice that resulted in an innocent man spending 44 years and counting behind bars. As I mentioned, We're going to hear directly from Leonard today. But first, it's time to reintroduce Kevin Sharp, the lawyer who's been petitioning the Trump administration to grant Leonard clemency. I'm the guy that picks up the heaviest rock in the quarry. That's Kevin. Back in the mid-aughts, Barack Obama appointed him to the bench of the United States District Court for the Middle District of Tennessee. But now he's back in private practice advocating to end mandatory minimum sentencing and working to free Leonard Peltier. It was about a year ago that I got this package in the mail. Um, And I get, from time to time, I get letters from people who are incarcerated and they're looking for help and, um, you know, wanting me to take their case or whatever it is. And it's just hard to do. And most people don't have um, cases that really have a realistic chance. Um, But I sat down with this package that was sent to me and was just blown away. It was newspaper clippings. It was trial transcripts. It was documents. It was photographs. It was you know photographs of paintings. It was the entire Leonard Peltier story in this big envelope. You know, I was only 12 at the time of these events. And, and so I had a vague recollection of something like this, but most of it surrounded Wounded Knee more than Pine Ridge, Firefight, Alcatraz. You know, it was all just kind of bumping around in there because, um, you know, early to mid-70s, to me, thinking back at it, it just seems so chaotic. Um, and now here we're, we seem to be living it again. But you had three television stations, you know, PBS gives you four. And so everybody was watching the same thing. And you sit down at night with your TV tray and you crowd around the television and you watch the news, even though you're 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, that was what you did at night. And so it always just seemed to be 
what's the hijacking? What's the what's the domestic unrest? Where's the protests? What are the body counts? I have this clear recollection of just getting body counts in the nightly news. And so I had this recollection of something that had happened out there, but it seemed so far removed from me in Memphis. And then to get this package and start going through this, now having a background not as an observer, but as a participant in the judicial system, and someone who had really spent my life doing that, because I got out of high school, I didn't go to college, I joined the military, uh, working at night, uh, two, really early morning, 2 a.m. to 6 a.m., I cleaned airplanes uh, for American Airlines, and then I would go to class at 8 and would go to class, get work done for the next day of school and, you know, then go to sleep only to wake up at one, get to work by two. But it was all I had this plan and it all revolved around the way that I viewed kind of the the American promise and the American ideal and what all of this meant and the importance of people who can take up the the mantle and the cause for those who can't. And, and, you know, really that kind of hit me in my early twenties. And so that's what I did. And, and then I practiced law and I did civil rights work. And then I am lucky enough and fortunate enough to get appointed to the bench by president Obama. And you said, all of that is my life. And then I stepped down from the bench and I get this envelope and I'm looking through it and I'm thinking, Oh my God. I realized this was 45 years ago, but my God, this is still going on today. Um, you know, what can I do? And maybe the answer is not much. I don't know. It consumes my life for now trying to figure out how to, how to write this. Because in the sense that you can ever write it, you can't make it right, but you can stop it. You know, what is your strategy right now? What is the best way you think to, to, to get Leonard out of there? Well, there's only, you know, there's only one way left, and that's uh, an executive clemency. The presidents have been reluctant to go against the FBI. Because I have that same feeling. No, this can't be true. This is not the FBI. You know, that's, that's not who they are. I watch the television shows. I, I dealt with them on the bench. And it's, it just wasn't my experience. But then I'm reading this, and you were just floored by what they did and that the U.S. attorney went along with it. And the, and the Lynn Crooks um, interview with, with Croft is really frightening. We'll be digging into all of this in much greater detail next season. But here's a quick primer on why Kevin believes the federal government essentially framed Leonard. Leonard was convicted of murdering FBI special agents Jack Kohler and Ronald Williams in April 1977, largely on two pieces of evidence. A sworn affidavit from a woman named Myrtle Poorbear claiming that she saw Peltier execute the agents, and the testimony of an FBI ballistics specialist who performed tests on a .223 shell found near the agent's vehicle. To the second point first, Leonard had access to an AR-15 which fires a two twenty three round. But the gun had suffered serious damage in a fire. It was impossible, the FBI's expert testified, to test the weapon's firing pin. However, he was able to analyze the mechanism that discharged the spent casings. Markings on the shell found at the scene, the specialist alleged, could only have been ejected from Leonard's rifle. Twenty-three years later, though, a Freedom of Information Act request revealed that the ballistics expert had lied on the stand. He had, in fact, been able to test the firing pin. And the impressions didn't match Peltier's gun. Now to the affidavit. Myrtle Poorbear signed an affidavit claiming she'd been on the Jumping Bull Ranch on June 26, 1975 and had seen Leonard kill the agents. But, by the time Leonard's trial was scheduled to begin, she reversed her story and began to claim publicly that the FBI had pressured her into inventing her eyewitness account. But when she attempted to correct her statement, Judge Paul Benson barred her on, quote, grounds of mental incompetence. Here's Myrtle Poorbear speaking with 60 Minutes' Steve Croft 
back in 1991. The first time I met Leonard was when um, he went to trial in Fargo, North Dakota. You'd never met him before? I've then. never met him before. A single mother working at an elementary school? Poor Bear maintains that the FBI threatened to take her daughter away and get her fired from her job if she didn't cooperate. They said you're going to know him because you're going to testify against him in court. And we're going to tell you everything about him. So they wrote this up? In the interview, Croft holds up a copy of her affidavit. And you signed it? Yes, I did. And remember when Kevin Sharp said, quote, but the Lynn Crooks thing was really frightening? He's referring to an interview Crooks gave to Steve Croft back in 1987. And here's what Crooks, the lead prosecutor in Leonard's case, had to say about Myrtle Poorbear's allegation that the FBI had coerced her testimony. Doesn't bother my conscience. If everything they say is right on that, doesn't bother my conscience one bit. The man's a murderer. He got convicted on fair evidence. Doesn't bother my conscience one whit. When he looks into the camera and says, well, what, if, what if what they say is true? Doesn't bother my conscience one bit. Thinking, oh my God, how can it not? <laughs> you didn't care about what happened. And you, he, and you could tell by the way he says it, he knew it was true. I mean, he gave a half-hearted denial, but then says, but what if, it's, what if it is true? Doesn't bother my conscience, right? And, and that is frightening. So, you know, that's part of what we've got to do. And I think it's become somewhat easier now is that that cloak of complete perfection and justice for all from, you know, what really is one of the greatest law enforcement agencies in the world, at least their ability to investigate when they chose not to, because they backed into it. Right. They knew where they wanted to come out and they backed into it. Now let's create the evidence to show so that we can convince somebody that this is what happened. And so I think that, that people are willing to, to question the infallibility of these organizations, whether it's U.S. Attorney's Office or the FBI or the BIA or the U.S. Marshals, that there's that opening. And you've got a president um, who is willing to look at that and really is not worried about what you know someone says about him or what the FBI says about him. That's the truth. <laughs> that is true. As I started putting together um, a petition, I went back and looked at prior petitions and and their strategies for for making a case that was, um, you know, at the end of the day would carry the day. And I looked at what they did, and and as I'm talking to this person who's who was helping, uh, you know, I said one of the problems was I think that the Presidents were afraid of the FBI. And this guy looks at me and goes, you want to know who's not afraid of the FBI? <laughs> Donald Trump. So the strategy is to get it in front of him. Then Leonard's story is so compelling. If you listen to it, it's really hard. You guys know this. It's really hard to, to break through the misinformation. A lot of it's still generated by the FBI. And some of it, even um, inadvertently, you know, certainly not intentional, but even my people who want to support Leonard and that are supporting Leonard talk about this in the wrong way because everyone's confused about how the case turned out and that, you know, he was convicted of shooting and killing two FBI agents. No, he wasn't. And even Leonard Peltier supporters don't realize that, that that case fell apart as soon as all the misconduct came out and the U.S. attorney had to abandon it. But it got abandoned on appeal because they were going to lose, right? On appeal, if they stuck with that Hakamami story that they had created, it was over, and there would be no way to retry it. You know, likely the court of appeals would have said, "Well, we're going to we're going to set this conviction aside. You go retry it." There was no reason to retry it on that theory because they had zero evidence of it. 
you know, by the time it comes out that the uh, ballistics test, you know, what we refer to as exculpatory evidence was hidden as a Brady violation, it should be over. You, 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 if you withhold that evidence, it's over. People don't like Peltier. They don't like what he had to say. And part of that was a result of the disinformation that was created by this post-Hoover FBI. And so, you know, he's part of AIM. They're bad guys. We don't like what he had to say. We think because we initially believed, you know, that the people out there who are opposed to, to clemency for Leonard, um, you know, we believe he, he killed these guys. Okay. I don't give a shit what you believe. <laughs> There's no evidence of that. And let's be consistent. The rule of law has to mean something. Constitutional rights have to mean something. Otherwise, we just throw them out. Whosoever has power just wields it how they want. That's great, I guess, if you're the one in power, but you're not always going to be in power. And so there has to be this constant. There has to be this, this ground that says no matter which party is in power, the Constitution is always the highest law in the land. That, I think, is the argument. I think even now, you know, George Floyd, too. You're right. That's the next one because there's another argument to be made. It was the politics of which voices were going to allow to be heard and which ones were not. And the FBI and J. Edgar Hoover were deciding which ones those were. Which voices today do we get to hear? A lot of people, you know, just think, ah, oh, it's Native Americans. And it has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with you. It has everything to do with all of us. Because if they will do that to a minority group or dissenting voice, you know, at some point, your voice is the dissenting voice. Everybody's got to be protected. The same laws and the same constitution has to apply to us. The, the system falls apart if the rules are fluid. The rules can't be fluid. FBI, you don't get to decide who wins and who loses. Grant Leonard clemency. Right? Let's show some mercy. You can recognize the misconduct of the FBI while saying it's time to heal this community. It's about the rule of law, and it's, and it's about our Native American uh, you know, communities, and it's about how they've been treated, and it's about how um, the FBI and those people in power have treated those with whom they disagree. Sure, we cheated. Sure, we made stuff up. But I think we got the right guy. And that's how they do it. And they stake the reputation on it. And that's why they can't let it go. Next season, we're going to explore how Leonard has been repeatedly denied a new trial. Despite the clear suppression of exculpatory evidence and the fabrication of affidavits, the government got caught cheating. They coerced a woman who wasn't even present at the Jumping Bull Ranch to say she personally saw Leonard fire the shots that killed agents Kohler and Williams. And the prosecution hid a critical ballistics test from defense lawyers. Why? Perhaps because the Department of Justice, which enforces the laws of the federal government, is somehow still afraid of anyone, indigenous people, black people, queer people, who continue to demand their rights despite centuries of oppression. And it also appears they're keeping Leonard in prison because they're embarrassed. If the FBI and federal prosecutors admit they were wrong about Peltier, it probably means they were wrong about a lot of other things, too. After the break, we speak with some of the other supporters, friends, and spiritual advisors whose advocacy has helped keep Leonard's hope alive for almost half a century. And then we speak with Leonard. Hi, this is Tom Morello of Rage Against the Machine, and you're listening to Leonard, a podcast series about America's longest-serving political prisoner, Leonard Peltier. For decades, I've been an ardent supporter of Leonard Peltier, obtaining his freedom and for the rights of indigenous people. Leonard's struggle is a long one, 
as is the struggle for decency and justice on this continent. We continue to support Leonard with our solidarity and love in the hope that he will be where he deserves to be, which is free, as all people deserve to be. So lots of love to you, Leonard, and hopefully we'll be able to see you out soon. And I'd love to come out there and see Leonard one of these days, too. I just don't know the best well, way to go I about doing it. Know, I don't know if you'll be able to. How old are you? That's the voice of Paulette Dote, director of the International Leonard Peltier Defense Committee and the former wife of Bob Rabadou. She's how we first got in touch with Leonard in the summer of 2019, and she was pretty blunt with us about how hard it would be to communicate with him. Oh, I'm 38. Well... You have to have known Leonard before he was incarcerated. Really? You know, he's a federal prisoner, and that's the federal uh, guideline, is that uh, the, there's a question on there that says, uh, how did you know this person before they were incarcerated? Um, Weird. And sometimes you can get people in as family. I don't know if you could get in as family or not. And, of course, you can't take any... Uh, devices in, right? To yeah, record. you couldn't take any recording devices or anything at that time. Right. They totally closed all sort of public relations. He can't give uh, any interviews, huh? Well, it's not that he can't. It's that uh, the prison won't let anybody give interviews. I mean, Leonard would certainly give you an interview. It's hard enough to interview an ordinary federal prisoner. It's exponentially harder to interview Leonard. As a Native American activist and member of the American Indian Movement, he's a special case. He was involved in a firefight defending treaty land, the ownership of which is disputed by two sovereign states, the United States and the Ogallala Sioux Nation. He's not just a man falsely accused of murder. He's a political prisoner. The longest uh, war between any uh, peoples are between the American Indians and the United States government. This is Lenny Foster, Leonard's longtime friend and spiritual advisor. The son of a Navajo code talker, Lenny tried out for the Los Angeles Dodgers before earning his master's degree from Arizona State University. He also helped AIM leader Dennis Banks escape wounded knee in the middle of the night, two days before federal agents invaded the village. But Lenny's reach goes way beyond Leonard Dennis and Wounded Knee. For decades, at 89 state and federal penitentiaries, Lenny has brought traditional healing and prayer to more than 1,500 imprisoned Native Americans. You know, the United States government is a very uh, vicious, very uh, mean-spirited adversary of the American Indians. And they refuse to allow any of our human rights uh, defenders, treaty rights defenders. Leonard Peltier definitely qualifies as a as a human rights defender, as a treaty rights defender. He was defending his people in the in this movement, and that's how he ended up incarcerated. He was accused of killing the two FBI agents. Back in 1975 in Oglala, South Dakota, uh, a complete miscarriage of justice resulted. Lies, fabricated allegations, evidence that was fabricated that were produced to railroad Leonard Peltier to the federal prison system. So that's the story of our relationship with the United States government. They'll take the land, the resources, water, pollute the air, pollute the water, and uh, commit a complete colonization of the mine. It's like a psychological warfare that they utilize as a technique to keep our people pacified, to keep our people uh, afraid and scared to stand up. Only the younger generation now has uh, stood up as evidenced by the, uh, the water protectors in Standing Rock, South Dakota, North Dakota. And uh, Leonard, Leonard Peltier is that symbol of resistance, but 
The government wants to use that as evidence to keep him incarcerated, that his presence and his voice is threatening to them. You got to understand, Leonard's been in prison 44 years. He's uh, he's 75. He's going to be 76 years old. He's an elder. He's a revered elder. But the United States government still sees him as a as a threat. Leonard Peltier's case. It's perhaps one of the most misunderstood and most difficult case in the history. One that is similar to Geronimo. Leonard Peltier is our generation Geronimo. You know, if you know the story of Geronimo, he was captured in the late 1880s. And he he was sent to Florida, and he spent the rest of his life uh, incarcerated in the United States federal prison system. And he died in Fort Sill, Oklahoma, as a prisoner of war. President Roosevelt wouldn't release him, though he, he had an opportunity to do so, but chose not to. The plan by the United States government has always been to eliminate our leaders, sometimes just outright uh, assassinations. They use uh, ways and means, uh, colonization, brainwashing, conquer and divide, COINTELPRO, uh, psychological warfare that's used by some of these uh, the law enforcement agencies of the United States government. It's very important for people who are incarcerated to maintain that uh, connection uh, with the spirits and uh, to maintain his essence as a human being and uh, to have uh, his uh, humanity supported. And uh, we've had to fight for those rights. The cleansing and purification ceremonies called Swellages, Inipi, Tutche. And also having uh, access to uh, Chanupa, the pipe, tobacco, uh, to be used as part of the pipe ceremonies. I've known Leonard for 50 years. I first met him in Denver, Colorado, 1970. I was a, a student at Colorado State University in Fort Collins at the time. He was a young man. He's, he's uh, four years older than me. You know, when a relative does time in prison, the, the whole family is doing time with him. I feel like I've done 44 years with him because I've known him that long. I first started visiting Leonard uh, as, a, as his spiritual leader when he was incarcerated at the USP Leavenworth, Kansas. And because of my knowledge and my experience as a sun dancer, a pipe carrier, I was able to do that swell out ceremony with him. So for for 35 years, I've been his uh, spiritual leader, giving him that uh, support, spiritual support, that hope, praying with him, smoking the chanupa, which is very important for our people, making an offering with the tobacco, using the, the fire and the hot stones for the cleansing and purification ceremonies. I have plans to visit uh, Leonard Peltier. I had to cancel one trip in uh, March of this year, 2020, but I had to cancel it because of this uh, COVID-19. I've been in shelter in place with my uh, family, my grandkids, my son and his family for uh, four months. It's been a very uh, trying, times for our people. I've lost uh, close uh, friends that became infected with this disease and lost their lives. So it's been a very uh, difficult, very trying times and has uh, resulted in a, a lot of grief for our people. And um, we pray that our relatives who are behind the iron doors are not affected or catch this disease. I think we have a certain obligation to to speak out against the transmission of this disease to those that are locked up who can't move around, but who are in close proximity to 
each other. Once uh, the restrictions have been lifted, then we'll be able to go visit, sit with him in the visiting room and uh, pray with him and just visit with him. That's uh, something we hope for very soon. Maybe maybe he could even get out. Well, that's what we're uh, hoping for and praying that he'll be released. Another person who prays a lot for Leonard's release and visits him whenever she can is Connie Nelson. You know, I was married to Willie Nelson. And in 1987, Willie was part of a big fundraiser that was done, I think called Cowboys for Indians and Justice for Leonard Peltier. Connie is a film producer, activist, and mother. In 1984, a film she helped make called Streetwise, about homeless teenagers in Seattle, was nominated for an Academy Award. Willie was part of it, of course, and Chris Christopherson, Joni Mitchell, Robin Williams, and of course, Peter Coyote was the master of ceremonies and put it all together. So that's what I first heard Leonard's name. And of course, I mean, just I think anybody that first hears about it realizes the injustice and just how horrible it would be for any of us to be in prison for something we didn't do. Like Leonard always says, if this happened to me, this could happen to anybody. And then, of course, after that, life went on. I had my, I had two girls and a family and Willie on the road and everything. So I didn't, and my fault, I didn't stay in touch. I, I just had, I, I just was crazy there for years. But, of course, I'm sorry, but the guilt that I had for letting it slide for so many years when I knew it was so important. Then uh, probably six Maybe seven years ago, a friend of mine here in Austin, uh, Tommy Lee Edmondson, called me, and she had been writing to Leonard. And I guess when she mentioned that she and I were friends, and he asked her to ask me if I would write to him. Well, of course. I mean, that just that threw me back right back to 1987. Back in 1987 the FBI picketed the Cowboys for Indians benefit in Orange County, California, that Peter Coyote had organized and that Connie's husband, Willie, headlined. To get through the gates, you had to pass through a gauntlet of chanting agents. At that time, the FBI was like the final word. Their word is golden. But when you really dig into everything, they were covering up injustice. And the agents that were there they probably weren't even as schooled in what had happened. They were just doing their job. But it was, it, was a, it was a trying time. But looking back on all that, you know, the saying, hindsight is twenty twenty. Of course they were covering up for other agents that messed up. So it was just a, it's just a horrible time all the way around when it comes to Leonard and everything that he's fought for. It just... It makes me so mad every time. I can't even hardly think about anything else. He was given two life sentences, and when he was convicted, a life sentence was 20 years. Well, he's been in now 44 years, going on 45. So right there, just that alone, just that one little thing alone, he should be out. I just keep trying to find ways that we can help him and get the word out and and just get him out of there. Sure seems like there's a lot more reason and a lot more people that have looked at the all the evidence and realized that, wait a minute, no matter what, this needs to be reinvestigated or let him out. He's already too old to be in there. He's sick. If anything, I mean, he's costing the states a lot of money just with the medical things that he needs. Let him out. Let him go home. Well, we're, we're with you on that. I mean, I, that's the other thing that just annoys me and upsets me to no end is that they are still keeping him in this supermax prison, Florida. And, and he's uh, not a threat to anybody, anybody, you know, anybody could outrun him. You know what I mean? He's not a threat to one person. One of the most loving things that could happen is send him closer to his home so he could see his relatives. 
in a yeah. non-maximum security setting. Why not do that? It's maddening that they won't do something like that when they've got all the power to do that. There's no compassion anywhere for the guy. It's unbelievable. Zero. You know? No, zero. I think a lot of people look at it like, you know, indicted for killing two FBI agents, and they don't look any further than that. doesn't matter that it was evidence to the contrary or any of that. They just see that, and that that's it. They just close-minded to the rest of it. I've gone to see him twice at Coleman. I've gone in, and it's, I mean, it's hard going in, being slammed in just for a day with him. I come back from there, and I just... It grates on me. I think about it when I wake up, that Leonard's waking up into this same hellhole that he's been in. And I go to sleep thinking he's not even getting a good night's rest. But the thing that sticks with me always is that if he doesn't give up, if he doesn't give up, how can we give up on him? He has such a resolve and such he's just a good man with this virus. For instance, he he cares so much. He sees the news and he worries about all of us on the outside. You know, I just, yeah, he's, he's just a, a good man. Person. I think you said in your email you, you spoke with him recently, right? Yes, I spoke with him. Uh, let me see. What's, what is today? I think it was Friday I spoke with him. And he said that there's two cases of the virus, but it was in the kitchen, like back people that weren't uh, involved with the prisoners or in contact. But the fact that there's already two cases in the prison, that's scary. But then, you know, he sounded good. He said, that, you know, they were doing, they're all wearing their masks. They're being as careful as they can. He only gets out like, an hour and a half every couple of, of every couple of days, and that does not include going outside. They can't do that anymore. But in that hour and a half, they have to get their shower. Maybe if there's an opening, they can get to a phone or they can get to a computer all within that hour and a half time. So he's oh. now he's more limited than than ever before. So how did it work when you went to see him in Coleman? You check in and then you sit in a room just like in a little like waiting room with maybe, I don't know, 20, 25 other people that are waiting to see their relatives or loved ones. The second time I sat there for over two and a half hours, no cell phone, just sit there and twiddle your thumbs. And then you go into this, it's like a big cafeteria-looking place, just metal chairs and, you know, no color, nothing. And then they bring in the inmates and, you know, little sections, people are sitting in little sections and waiting for their loved ones. And Leonard comes in with a big smile every time, just so happy to see people, so happy to have a different norm than what he usually does. And we just sit there and talk about everything. First thing he wants to know is, how are you? What's going on? What's, you know, what's life like on the other side? And then, then he starts talking about things that he's been thinking about and maybe what, what we could do different, what we're thinking might help. And then, you know, then there's a certain time, I think three o'clock, it's over, you know, the prisoners have to, have to line up. And that's, I can't even tell you, it's just the hardest thing. They line up on one side and then we get on the other side by the guards and Leonard just kind of waves and knowing that when he goes through that door, not going to see him again for who knows, maybe years. And then after they take him out, then we go out and I, I swear it's all I could do to not cry. I could cry right now just thinking about it. It's just one of the hardest things ever to leave him in there and to know that that was the big highlight maybe for a month for him just to see somebody on the outside and be able to sit there and talk without, you know, without a 10-minute or 15-minute time limit that he gets on the phone. If Leonard doesn't give up, how can we, after almost 45 years of being incarcerated, if he can still have hope, 
even for a day that he might get out, he still puts faith in people because he's innocent. If he wasn't innocent, he probably would have given up on this a long time ago. The fact that he is innocent, he has no quit in him. So I have no quit in me. I feel like the lawyers that are working for him now are have the same commitment. And you guys, look at you guys, what you're doing. If we can keep that momentum going for Leonard and think about him daily is not being a quitter and being a fighter for his people, then maybe there is still hope that we can get him out. After the break, we finally talk with Leonard. Hi, this is Connie Nelson, and you're listening to Leonard, a podcast series about America's longest-serving political prisoner, Leonard Peltier. I first heard about Leonard from my then-husband, Willie Nelson. They organized a concert in 1987 to help raise awareness for Leonard's unjust incarceration. Since then, Leonard has become one of my best friends. He's truly an incredible human being who deserves to spend his last days on Earth with his family and friends as a free man. To help Leonard, you can sign a new clemency petition at freeleonardpeltier.com slash petition. You can also purchase artwork and merchandise to support Leonard's legal defense at whoisleonardpeltier.info. Leonard says, if they've done this to me, they can do it to you. Until Leonard Peltier is free, none of us are free. Despite all the restrictions barring journalists from talking with Leonard, we managed to get on his call list. I wasn't supposed to record the conversation, but to hell with it. With COVID-19 ravaging prison populations, people need to understand just how vulnerable he is. How's your health doing? Well, you know, I've got an uh, aortic aneurysm that's uh, quite large and uh, uh, could burst at any time. Seventy-five years, that's a long haul. Yeah, yeah, long haul. I, I get these problems taken care of, though. Shit, I could probably go another 20 years. My family, when I had a longevity in my family. I believe you, yeah. I know you're, how long, your dad lived to be, uh, your dad, how long? Well, how old? not my dad. My dad didn't live to be 67 or something like that. Uh, but he had diabetes from a young age. He never took care of himself or nothing. Mm. got to get you out of there like you said you could you could get the the yeah. medical treatment you'll be good for yeah. another 20 years let's call it's from a federal prison yeah the aneurysm could be a fix in a three-hour operation you know and uh this prostate problem uh i had a specialist come in and he's telling me they got a new ultra lift they call it and uh, that's only a 10-minute operation but if it keeps going the way it's going and it's not treated, then it's going to develop into something more serious, you know. The lungs, I don't know what the hell that is. I really don't know. They won't, they won't tell me what the hell it is, you know. 
you can't get the procedures. What what is the what do the doctors say? They just you can't get the. Well, they won't. Basically, in prison, they won't treat you until it's life and death matter. That is usually too late, you know. Right, and it doesn't sound like that. Sounds like that would be more expensive. But I mean, once it's life or death, just logically, that's yeah, going to be a more yeah. expensive procedure than like you just said, doing a ten minute yeah, deal. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yeah, I agree, but. Right. We can get, uh, we're going to do the email probably tomorrow or something, but watch for it. All you do is answer is, is, is stuff. Then, I'll, then as soon as I, I see your approval, I'll send you an email and uh, we can start emailing. Yeah, that'll be good, man. I, right. I definitely want to talk to you some more. We got an email from Leonard last week. We hadn't talked to him in almost a year. We wrote to give him a rundown of the work we'd been doing on season one and the response we'd gotten, both from his longtime supporters and a new generation of people hearing his story for the first time. Because we don't have Leonard's voice, here's Peter Coyote reading for Leonard again. Hey, bro. Finally. I was beginning to think he was full of shit. He inserted a smiley face. Our hearts lifted. But now it's all going great. Let's build us a team, huh? Do this until we get the most downloads for a podcast ever imagined. Another smiley face. If we do it, we can make history, brother. Smiley face number three. As you can see, you now have my attention. A few months ago, this country emerged from the coma of COVID-19 to the crack of gunshots, to the sound of a man gasping for breath and calling for his mother. George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery are some of the latest names on the list of victims of a judicial system that has behaved for centuries as if it weren't accountable to the most vulnerable people it's supposed to serve. That list of victims also includes Edith Eaglehawk and her babies. Joe Stunts, Wesley Badhart Bull, Frank Clearwater, Buddy Lamont, and the 60-some AIM activists and supporters killed on Pine Ridge in the 1970s. In the United States, the more than 500 missing and murdered indigenous women, girls, and two spirits identified by the Coalition to Stop Violence Against Native Women, they're on that list too. For that matter, So are the 824 missing and murdered First Nations women north of the medicine line. Right now, Leonard isn't on that list. But he will be if he dies in Coleman Federal Penitentiary. President Trump could free Leonard with the stroke of a pen. It wouldn't undo the damage already done. It wouldn't save the lives of the millions who have died since Columbus invaded this continent back in 1492. But it would end one injustice. It would restore some of the dignity we've stripped from one man. It's part of the healing. It's part of the dismantling of our racist, colonialist past. That's why it's time to free Leonard Peltier. On the next season of Leonard, Political Prisoner, the FBI were going all over. Sometimes they had a search warrant. Most of the time they didn't. There's helicopters landing at Edgar Bear Runner's house. Fifteen FBI agents flooded the house, came in. Shotguns, AR-15, 16, just to arrest me. They said, throw him off the bridge right here. Trying to play psych on me, huh? One of those FBI agents said, you know, Yellow Hair, we owe you one more. Who is this one that they're talking about? We're talking about Leonard Paltier as a sacrificial lamb, you know, to a monumental cover-up by the FBI. We always suspected that there was an FBI informant near the defense team, subfile N. That's the informant file. There's still 10,500 
155 pages we have not seen. Lord knows what's in there. This stuff should have been turned over in 1977. How can you properly defend yourself when there's thousands of pages still being kept secret by the government? Even good judges like Judge Heaney dramatically misinterpreted the very recent decision of the U.S. Supreme Court the year before, and they went through within the several paragraphs legal and factual fantasies to um, deny him a new trial and say, really, the government prosecuted him as an aider and a better, and that was bullshit. And they knew it. Rocky Duane is... He was a fisherman and he was found in the lake all tied up in his net. Bobby Garcia, they tried to say he hung himself, but he was like assassinated. Out of all those people that helped Leonard escape, Leonard's the only one left alive. The legacy is that he caused others to stand up and he stood with them. And when it needs to come to paying a price, he's willing to do it. And he did, and he does, every day. We can't forget him out here. You know, all the legal arguments have been pretty much exhausted. Probably the only thing left is somebody that's good enough to say, this is not what the United States is about, you know, it's free the man. This podcast is produced, written, and edited on Tongve land by Rory Owen Delaney, James Kalin, and Andrew Fuller. Kevin McKiernan serves as our consulting producer. Thanks to Maya Minert, Emily Deutsch, and Blessing Yen for helping support us while we do what we hope is important work. Thanks to Bobby Halverson for the original music we're using throughout this series. And thanks to Mike Casentini at the Network Studios for his engineering assistance. And to Peter Lauridson and Sycamore Sound for their audio mixing. Thanks to Steve Croft at 60 Minutes for reporting on Leonard's story back in the 1980s. Thanks to Paulette Dote for her tireless work leading the International Leonard Peltier Defense Committee. Thanks to Kevin Sharp for taking up Leonard's case and petitioning for his clemency. Thanks to Lenny Foster for his decades of work healing the spirits of thousands of incarcerated Native Americans. Thanks to Connie Nelson for her friendship and advocacy. Thanks to Peter Coyote for his fight to free Leonard and for giving Leonard a voice when we only had his words on paper. And thanks, most of all, to Leonard Peltier. To get involved and help Leonard, sign the new clemency petition at freeleonardpeltier.com. For more information, go to whoisleonardpeltier.info or find us on social media at Leonard underscore pod on Twitter and Instagram or facebook.com backslash Leonard podcast. This podcast is a production of Man Bites Dog Films, LLC. Free Leonard Peltier. <laughs>